these servants are completely stuck. We get the gist of it here, but so much of the nuance is lost on our modern ears. So maybe we should start out with some math. Owing someone 10,000 of just about anything feels uh, pretty stressful to me. But the truth is, this is an unimaginable debt. One talent, just one talent, was about 130 pounds of silver, which would take this servant about 15 years to earn. So that means that the poor fellow owes the king, give or take, about 150,000 years of labor. He will never, ever, ever come anywhere close to repaying it. Not on his own. But the second servant's situation isn't much better. A denarius was about a day's wage, so he owes the first servant a hundred days of labor. This is obviously far less than 150,000 years, but honestly... This, too, is impossible. Both men lived hand to mouth. There is no getting ahead, no saving up, no way that a clever investment will multiply to that degree. They are both utterly stuck. Unless, suddenly, they are not. Unless, miraculously, the debt is forgiven, the weight is lifted, a door that no one knew existed is suddenly standing wide open. The first servant experiences this wonder. He starts by pleading, and then, incredibly, he receives this mercy. And then... To our dismay, he turns around and refuses to extend this same mercy to the second servant. Cue the king's fury and the sentence to eternal torture. Eternal, remember, because if he's going to be tortured until he can repay the debt, well, that is never going to happen in this lifetime. So the punchline is pretty straightforward. Right? Having been forgiven greatly, we should forgive greatly. And otherwise, we'll be tortured for eternity. Wait, what? (laughs) Jesus tells Peter and their friends this strange little story to expand on his encouragement that we forgive not seven times, as Peter, I think, fairly generously offers but 77 times. Or because the translation, as ever, is ambiguous, maybe it's seven times 70 times. Far more times than we can count. And I agree that the first, that is problematic, that the first servant doesn't forgive the second, especially after this windfall of grace he has just experienced. But for the king to ruthlessly come pounding down on him, the king king forgave one time. 
and he can't even muster a second time here. And we're supposed to do so 77 or, or perhaps 490 times? Huh. First, I, I want to say a little bit about what a parable is, and maybe even more importantly, what a parable is not. Parables were already a genre in Jesus' time. He didn't invent them. He was just masterful with them. The genre is a, a mystifying kind of storytelling that was meant to puzzle the listener, make them think and wrestle. It's a compound word made up of para and bole. Para meaning, meaning alongside, like parallel, and bole meaning to throw, like a ball. A parable, then, is a way of throwing two things alongside each other, often that make for a strange and thought-provoking combination. Parables create more questions than answers. They are meant to unsettle us, to challenge us, to make us dig deeper. And so then on the flip side, here are some things that parables are not. They are not allegories. So often we hear the king quite automatically taken to be God, but God might just as readily be understood as the servant, or, or maybe God isn't a character in the story at all. Maybe you are the king, or maybe I am. Maybe we're all the first servant and the second servant. The point is, it isn't a simple game of substitution. And maybe even more importantly, parables are not fables either. They do not carry a straightforward moral. It gets confusing here because this one sure sounds like it does, right? There's that squirm-inducing line following the parable where Jesus promises that God will punish us just as the king did if we do not forgive. So what's going on? Well, for one thing, this kind of explanation, this explanation specifically, is not present in any of the other Gospels, which raises some suspicion. Second, this is a pattern in Matthew's Gospel. Over and over again, this Gospel explains what Jesus' mysterious words mean in really just remarkably clear-cut, straightforward ways where the other Gospels stay silent. And so many scholars guess that Jesus did not say this, but rather that some scribes added it in later, trying their best to be helpful. But I think we need the mystery more than the tidy would-be explanation, because none of this is tidy not in real life. The mystery is what's real and what we need to wrestle. So if this parable is not a cautionary morality tale, how might we engage it? As I turned it around 
and around this week, it occurred to me that one way to use a parable is like a prism. It's a way that we can see the same situation broken out into different strands of light, depending on where we stand. Do you see yourself in the king? The first servant, the second, the bystanders, watching it all unfold first in wonder and then in anger and then in horror. Where are we and what do we notice from that place? Can we turn the parable for another view, another ray of light? And as we hold it, delicately, intently, I wonder if the parable can also be a starting point for getting unstuck, a cause for getting curious, a a reminder of where we might turn our attention, and maybe most especially a glimpse of what beautiful, unlikely things might actually be possible. As we look through this prism, we can see at least two hopeful things. We can look through it towards the ways that we have been forgiven, both by other people and by God. We have all messed up, sometimes in small ways and sometimes quite royally. I know I have. And we have all been forgiven by God always and by other people plenty. I don't know about you, but receiving forgiveness has taken my breath away. And if I slow down to think about it, it still does. Maybe it's come in ways we hoped for but didn't count on. Or maybe the forgiveness came in ways that were astonishing. Regardless, it was good. It is good still. And then we can turn the prism a bit more and look through this parable to see how we ourselves might forgive others. We can see what might be possible Imagine something greater than what we would come up with alone and far more freeing for all involved. We can see how it might be possible to set down the grudge that we have been carrying for ages or how maybe we could stop keeping score or how maybe sometimes we could decide to start over. We can look through this parable and see that another way might be possible. Have you ever been stuck? Have you found yourself in some kind of bind that you cannot get yourself out of? No way, no how, not on your own. I sure have. I know that place. It hurts. It's terrifying. And yet, still, from this parable, it seems there is an opening. That stuckness doesn't have to have the final word. 
There may be much that is out of our control, but we can look towards this forgiveness, towards God's, towards what others offer, towards the forgiveness that that we can maybe begin imagining to muster the courage to extend ourselves. We can look towards forgiveness and see that as a start, even just the idea of it creates possibility that wasn't there before. We can begin to envision another way. Ultimately, no matter who is giving or receiving this forgiveness, it is an opportunity for resurrection. It opens up cracks in our understanding of how stuck things are, how stuck we might think we will always be. It begins to create room for for little resurrections and then sometimes for bigger ones too. Forgiveness, even just the idea of it, brings the possibility of new life, of life returning. Whether we long to receive it or wonder what it would take to offer it, we can begin by simply looking at this story from one angle and then another and then another. We can let this vision of forgiveness be our guide, slowly and hopefully leading us forward, pulling us into new life. 